Welcome to Conversations in Process, hosted by Jay McDaniel and co-sponsored by the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. These conversations explore a way of understanding and living in the world that emphasizes the continual becoming and fundamental interconnectedness of all things. But they're also intended to provide an ongoing interaction in which the stories, insights, and wisdom of each conversation partner can expand your horizon and enrich your journey and process. In this conversation, Jay welcomes Kathleen Reeves. Known as Cat to her friends, she's a board member, leader of the Spiritual Integration Group, and a fundraising and social media consultant at the Cobb Institute. She's also a writer, artist, and published poet. She's currently completing her Master of Divinity and will soon be ordained as an interfaith minister. Kat has been active in interfaith peace and is a member of the Inland Valley Interfaith Working Group for Middle East Peace in Southern California. She's the president of the Upland Interfaith Council and has held leadership positions in Unitarian Universalist congregations. Her community interfaith ministry also led her to volunteer with Syrian refugees as they settled into their new country. Her deep connection with one special family is captured in a series of stories that she wrote for the Huffington Post. Kat is also a student of Japanese tea ceremony and is trained in restorative practice. She follows an earth-based religion and belongs to the order of bards, ovates, and druids. And she is working on ways to bring process philosophy to the spiritual but not religious through small group ministry. Well, hello, Kathleen Reeves, and I'm going to call you Kat because we're friends. And I've known you for some time now, and uh, we work a lot in the process world. And you're one of the, the only process folks I know that self-consciously say, by the way, I'm a pagan. And one reason that, that I'm looking forward to talking with you today is really to better understand that and, and understand what kind of pagan you are and what it is to be a pagan in the first place. So can you say a word about that to get us started? Sure, Jay. Thank you. Thank you so much for um, inviting me to do the podcast. Uh, um, the way that I feel that my paganism is that I am connected to everything. And the earth and the trees are such a big part of that. It's such a big part of my paganism that interrelatedness, the interconnected web of life. And it just feels so natural to me. So how did you get there? Did you, were you born that way? Is that, is that what you said? <laughs> just as you came out of the womb, um, I'm connected to everything, I'm a pagan. So some, somewhere there was a journey there. Can you say a word about that? Yeah, I, I would like to think that I, um, I came out of the womb dancing in the forest and <laughs> um, worshiping nature and um, talking to trees and hugging trees. But I actually was born into a Catholic family. And I, I think that the ritual in the Catholic church had a, a big effect on me and really kind of plays into my paganism. I love ritual. And there's a, a mystery in the mass, um, and also that kind of deep mystical connection with spirit. I, when I was young, I used to go to the convents and I would stay with the nuns and I, I thought I would be a nun, but I would also see the priest 
doing the mass and I would think I'd rather be doing that. But as a woman, there, there really is no, no road for me to be a priest. And then I, I grew, I think I really grew out beyond the, um, the Catholic church. And it, what's funny is it happened on a retreat, a Catholic retreat. And we were up in the mountains in the snow, and it was my first time in the snow where it was actually snow was falling, and it was so magical. And I remember climbing a tree and sitting in the tree, and just all of a sudden, I I felt everything. I could feel the tree. I felt the, the rocks and all the trees around me, and I felt like I was part of it. And it, it was just such an overwhelming experience. And I, I really can't even, that's the best way I can describe it. It's really hard to put it into words. But that's when I knew that I was part of something and it had to do with, with the natural world, but also spirit in the connection. Well, that makes a, a lot of sense to me. And it, did you leave the Catholic Church out of um, anger with the church or, or by contrast, out of just the pull of a, of a different way that seemed that was you and richer and fuller in a way than was available in the, in the church? Was there anger or, or, or not? Some people, for no. some people, there's anger. I was just wondering for you. No, not at all. I, I actually loved the church. Mm-hmm. Um, I had good experiences, and I know that's not the case with everybody, but I had really good experiences, um, and I, I really always felt that my childhood church was home, and I, I would go there periodically. I, unfortunately, it burned, um, an arsonist burned it down, and I, as a pagan, even as a pagan, I felt such a loss because I... I grew up in that church and I remember that the pews were made out of cedar. And so the minute that you walked into that church, you could smell the cedar. It's just wonderful. It's, you know, I remember, we remember through our senses of smell as well as um, our vision and our sound. And um, I'll never forget the smell of the inside of that church. And then climbing that tree, um, were you a tree person? And, and, and I don't, I don't mean this in a casual way. I mean, some people have a deep affinity for trees, um, maybe more so than others, uh, than other people do. D- did you have that affinity for trees from, from the get go as a child? Yes. I love climbing trees. I, I will climb any tree even today. And, um, I, I have special trees that I like to just hang out with. And um, there's a tree um, up near Santa Barbara that I call Grandmother Sycamore that I go and I, I call it her, her branches, her arms, and I go and sit with her and I, I bring my flute and I play my flute. And, um, and then there's an oak tree in the botanical gardens in, in Claremont. That's the majestic oak. That's what they call it. And, and I go and I put my back up against it and just feel the presence of the tree. Trees, they give us so much. You know, it's not just the exchange of carbon dioxide and oxygen, but 
they take the things that we need to get rid of the negative energy and they can ground it and they can give us back positive energy. And if you really are sensitive and you walk around trees, you can feel something, this, this presence that's very comforting. You know, as, as a college teacher, I've worked with a whole lot of students that uh, some of them, of course, have suffered from depression. You know, that's life. But I've certainly had students who would say to me in the midst of depression, you know, my only friend is a tree. <laughs> and, and, and where I actually go for a kind of companionship in a sense that there's something that welcomes me and understands me. Um, it's this tree, <laughs> this tree. Uh, so that means a lot to me. Kat, I know that there are a lot of kinds of pagans not just one, and you can't speak for all pagans. So can you give us a little bit of the lay of the land and tell us what kind of pagan are you? Okay. Well, and that is very true. Uh, pagans are very independent thinkers. Uh, we're kind of, um, I wouldn't say influenced by, but along the lines of Emerson and Thoreau, of that, that direct experience, um, we we gain our knowledge through um, our own experience with nature, but I am actually a Druid and I'm a member of Obad, the order of Bards, Obates, and Druids. And the three grades, and they're, they're not hierarchical. Um, they're, they each have their own um, wonderful um, areas of study. And so there's the Bardic grade, which is the arts, the storyteller, the, um, the poet, and um, really an appreciation of beauty and finding a way to bring that into the language. Then there's the ovate, which is um, they study herbs and um, kind of more of what we call magic, but um, there's a, a lot of baggage with that word. And I know that, that people might think some people might think that it's silly, but there is there is something to it. Working um, kind of with the energies in the earth. Um, and then there's the Druid grade, which is the philosopher, the leaders, the, the judges. And, um, and so we study all three of those. And it takes many years to get through the, the course if you really spend time with it. I have um, done all three through Obad. And so I've... Um, and my Bardic, my Ovate, and my Druid course. Um, when you study those, um, because there's not, you know, a church, a pagan church, a building that people can go to and congregate, uh, is it through um, informal relationships in the community or through the internet? Or what's the medium of, of, of learning and, and being with others who identify as pagans? Well, it's, it's kind of difficult because we are all over the world, members of, of Obad, but the, the main house or the order is housed in, um, in England. And so when we sign up for, for the Obad lessons, and, and the word that we use is Gwersi, that's a, a Welsh word for lessons, uh, we receive it through the mail. And we get um, we study, and then we also have a mentor that works with us, and we keep in touch with our mentor. And then there's lots of things, lots of ways that we connect 
through social media and um, and now we're learning about Zoom. And so I'm able to attend some of the orders um, rituals through Zoom. But we, um, I liked getting my Gorsi on CDs. We don't have it digitized yet, but I love hearing the voices of um, the different teachers and um, just, you know, just spending time hearing the, um, it's like being with, with somebody and listening to the lessons. I, I like that aspect of it. It raises such an interesting question about community and how much is face-to-face -face necessary and how much is voice-to-ear uh, a, way, a way of forming community when you heard, heard those voices. Um, I know that poetry is a really important part of your life. Um, and speaking of poetry, it has an oral dimension as well as a written dimension. Uh, just as a kind of interlude here, would you mind sharing a poem with, with us, with me? Sure. I, what, um, I think the poem that I'll share is about the tree that I talked about, Grandmother Sycamore. And um, I think this kind of tells my connection with, with this tree. Grandmother Sycamore, ancient crone, extending east, west, north, and south, no longer reaching for sky as she did at birth, now caressing earth, tired from weight of years, pulling down branch arms into cradles to hold spirit children who climb easily into her lap. I hold her with ear against bark and listen to the wisdom of 200 years. <laughs> you know, uh, among the phrases in that poem that I really love is with ear to bark. And it's both um, so sensual, uh, tactile, and so spiritual, and not at all separated. So um, thanks for that. Maybe we can hear another one a little later, uh, a little more about your, your journey in paganism per se, and we'll turn to process as well in just a second. But I understand that you have a craft name, and so your name in, in the pagan community is not Kathleen Reeves, but it's something else. So can you tell us about that? Yes. Um, and this isn't specifically Druid, but many pagans use an alias. And the reasons for that are because there, there is a time where being a pagan was a dangerous thing. And so a lot of people would use a name so they could kind of remain hidden. And um, we often call it in the broom closet. So, um, and, you know, it, we do, there are a lot of situations where pagans are thought of as fringe and strange. And there's even a lot of my family members who don't know because they would just think that I'm, I'm weird, but my craft name is Sophia. And I chose that because I am always trying to learn and I'm just in, I just love learning and that's, I'm driven to continue to increase my knowledge. Well, I know you well enough to know that that's a perfect name for you. And, and for exactly those reasons, 
um, because you are so, you want to learn so much. Um, and there's a philosopher and there's a lover of wisdom inside you, Philosophia. And so that's just, that's a great name. Now you've gotten yourself um, mixed up with or absorbed in or whatever, however you would put it, this world called process philosophy in the process community. Uh, what drew you to process? How'd that happen? How did that happen? Yeah. <laughs> well, I was going to say you'd be surprised, but maybe not um, to know how paganism just fits with process. And I already had this cosmology worked out about interconnectedness and about um, just the connection with earth and how everything affects everything. And that's, that's pretty pagan. And there's also part of our pagan ethics, the law of return, which means everything that you do has an impact. And so you have to think very carefully before you do, um, you know, pagans are, are known for doing spells or doing magic work, but you don't just do like, I want this and I'm going to do a spell to make this happen. You have to understand that whenever you receive something, then somebody else, you know, it's impacting. And so what is your place in the world and how are you affecting others? So I had this cosmology already. And then part of my, my childhood and my becoming, I always knew that I wasn't, um, that I wasn't all that I was going to be as a, a child. And, and still to this day, I'm very shy, but I was so shy and introverted that I couldn't even talk to people. And I didn't want to be that way. And I remember um, I went through most of my, my childhood into my early 20s like that. And, um, and it was paralyzing. And, um, and it was really getting in the way of life. But I remember going to a Unitarian Universalist con um, conference. And there was a woman speaking. And she was just so beautiful and so eloquent. And I just was mesmerized. And I looked at her and I thought, I want to do that. And that person was Thandaica. And some people in the process world know of the Reverend Dr. Thandaica. She was a student of John Cobb's. And um, she she's just an amazing person. I really admire her. And so I would go anywhere if Thandaica was in town, I would go hear her. And she um, often came to the Center for Process Studies and would speak about Schleiermacher, and which isn't so far off from process, very, very close. And, um, and that's where I discovered the process family. And, um, and it just, I thought, wow, this fits. This really fits. But of course, uh, I had to learn more about it. And that's, that's a big undertaking to try to understand Alfred North Whitehead. <laughs> yeah, you know, Fandeika's uh, interest in Schleiermacher, Schleiermacher emphasized feeling. Mm -hmm. 
and he, he, he took the emotional side of life extremely seriously as, as where religion actually happens mm-hmm. in the realm of feeling. And, and Whitehead's philosophy is very conducive to that because in Whitehead, everything is an act of feeling or apprehension. But a lot of people don't see that. And I wonder if, if one of the gifts of paganism to the process community, not paganism alone, but pa- paganism to be sure, mm-hmm. is to uh, remind us um, of the primacy of feeling um, in life, in life. Now, paganism, now that you're mixed up in this process world, you're around all kinds of evangelical and post-evangelical Christians <laughs> and some Jews and um, a Muslim here, or there, here and there, and lots of people that are spiritual but not religious, and Unitarian Universalists, you know, this, this potpourri of religious identities. And, I, you know, I don't, I think we in the process community, you know, welcome. We're glad to have you. Um, but you do have some customs or you use some words that we find we're not familiar with. And one of those is magic. Uh, so we, oh, pagans are interested in magic. And we go, yeah, okay. Uh, so can you say a word about magic and paganism? Okay. I'm. Let's see how to explain this. Um, so in, in process, we are always becoming. And so in every moment, I can make a choice. But I think most people kind of go the path of least resistance. And because um, there's so many little things that we in little ways in which we go forward. And then there's larger decisions as well. Magic is being very intentional. That's all it is. It's being very intentional and saying, I want this. Like, for example, me looking up at Thandaika speaking and saying, I want to be that. I want to be able to speak like that. And as a very shy, introverted young girl, it's it's kind of magical for me to go from there to here. And so it's not so, you know, so strange. It's almost like a prayer, although I don't like to measure everything against Christianity as, as the measuring stick. But um if, if people need to understand it, it's, it's an intention. And I think that, you know, if we were to talk about the invitation or the lure of God, I think that it's, it's working with God for that intention. That's really interesting. Now, are there different kinds of magic? Um, Someone once said, oh, you, you can talk about three three kinds of magic or something like that. Or, or are there different kinds? Oh, in the, in the Druid world. So we have um, the magic of questing. Mm-hmm. And that is, that would be the bardic grade, the um, kind of the adventure, the wonder, and working with... Um, yeah, just that, the, the beauty of the world. And, um, you know, we're always, 
we're always working with um, an adventure with something new as we're becoming. And so that's the, the quest. Which way are you gonna go? What are you gonna do with your life? And how are you gonna guide where you go? Mm. Is there a sense, um, Kat, of being guided as well as, as well as guiding your own life? You know, existential philosophy emphasizes, you know, you are the, your decisions are everything. Um, there's nothing guiding you, it's you. I get the sense that in paganism, it's nature or the spirit of nature or something is a companion in the process, but I don't know. I'm really asking you that question. Yeah, well, then we could go into the magic of making, choosing mm -hmm. the will, the subjective aim, mm -hmm. the, um, and, and I speaking just for myself, I have always felt like there is something alongside of me some and and you know we can call it god deity the gods many gods goddess spirit but i feel it in my life right on that right there uh, you mentioned something that i personally appreciate and that is the notion of the gods in the plural and the goddesses in the plural. And um, the reason I appreciate that is because I know that monotheists can, 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 can kind of overemphasize unity at the expense of diversity, oneness at the expense of manyness. There's the monotheistic imagination um, that always has to say one, 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 one. But I get the sense that pagans can say many. Oh, yes. In, or at home with many. Is that true? Is that an impression of mine? Is that accurate? Yeah. And there's different, you know, depends on the pagan. There's different ways to look at it. And and I haven't fully resolved how I look at it. It might depend on the day that you ask me. But I don't feel that God is limited to just one. You know, um, you know, we're we are constantly becoming and God is constantly becoming. Maybe God is you know, many and, and in different ways and different um, aspects, different personalities. You've got Whitehead on your side. <laughs> <laughs> it, is, it is as true to say God is many as, that, as it is to say that God is one. So, so the, yeah, right. <laughs> I think that's the pagan side of Whitehead among many. Uh, another side of Whitehead that uh, in my conversations with you, I think you've picked up on is the notion of creativity yes. um, as, as kind of a practice. I mean, it, it, you know, you can lift up creativity and say, this is among other things, a spiritual practice. You want to say a word about that? Yes. Um, so we have a word in, in um, the Druid practice, which is called Awin. And Awin is inspiration. It's, it's something that we can tap into and work with. And I feel all in when I'm writing poetry. A, a lot of times I will think, I'm going to write a poem about this. And I have it in my head and I start to write it. And then all of a sudden the poem wants to go in a different direction. And I used to fight it. Now I don't. Now I just go with it because I am working with Awin. And, and maybe Awin is the way 
that the deities work with us, the lure, the creativity into novelty. And the Greeks have the concept of the muse mm -hmm. and the language that um, the kind of Christian and Jewish process theologians have picked up on is the lure. But when I hear about a win, I also think of, think of a muse, something that ignites and inspires uh, our creativity. Is that, well, tell me more about Awen. I guess I'll say, tell me more about Awen. Yeah, it's, so Awen is there. It's there and the ideas are there. And we just, what we need to do is open ourselves to it. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when people have writer's block or um, they struggle, a lot of times they're, they're in the way. What you need to do is get out of the way and open up and let Awin in and then just, and partner. It's a partnership. And it's not just in, in writing poetry or painting. It's, I often talk about gardening and, you know, the partnership with the earth. It's everything that we do has to be in partnership. And that's just one of the many partnerships it's but Awin can come in in cooking um in creating a recipe deciding you know what you're going to put in the in the pot to spice it up it comes in so many ways is it is it kind of like inspiration mm -hmm. would that be a word that would also yeah. name the spirit of Awin? yes it's it yeah inspiration but if if you ignore it if you feel inspired for something, but you don't do anything about it, it's going to move on. And, and that idea is still there. Somebody else might tap into it and create. So take it when it's coming to you. Uh, yeah, that's really uh, quite beautiful. And uh, when it moves on, it moves to a place that you're also already connected to in some way. So it can leave you and go somewhere else. But you're kind of many places too through all that connectedness. Can, can you say a word about the Druid sense of connectedness? Uh, just if somebody says, really now, what connects us? Atoms, molecules, <laughs> you know, get specific. Do you want to say a word about connectedness? I'll give you another Welsh word, nuifre. And that is, it's a, it's a energy that is, um, in the world, it's kind of like Henri Berson, um, his Elan um, Vital. It's, and there's so many other chi. Um, there's there's so many other words for this kind of energy that flows in between us, and and um, everything that I do is going to affect Nuifre because it's part of me, it's part of you, it's in the trees, it's in the stones, it's in the earth. It's it's this force of life. Now, am I right that for you, Kat, and other pagans, uh, energy and spirit are kind of two names for, some, for the same? Uh, let me tell you what's behind my question. In, in the West, um, and there was a gradual separation of energy from spirit and spirit was one thing 
the Holy Spirit of God. And energy was another thing. And there was a sense in which now the scientists are going to help us understand energy. Mm-hmm. But that's different. The priests can help us understand spirit. But there's lots of traditions where those two are not separable. And energy is spirit and spirit is energy. I, I'm wondering what the language of a pagan would be. Would you say anything like, well, actually, I don't think they're so separate. Energy is spirit and spirit energy or, or not. Just what's your language? For me, for me, it's it's not separate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the energy is in the in spirit, and it's and so that means that spirit is everywhere. Wherever there's energy, there's spirit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that certainly links. You're right. That links paganism with Chinese traditions of qi. Um, it actually, in a funny kind of way, links paganism with Pentecostal Christian traditions, where energetic dynamics within a context of worship, the music and dance, or, you know, that's where the spirit is. So I don't, it's so interesting. Um, so here you are, and you've, you're part of the process community and a leader in the process community. Um, how weird did that community seem to you and, and what did it offer you? What does it offer you? Can you say a word about how it feels to be part of the process community as a pagan? Yeah, that's my question. Well, gosh, there's so much I love about it. Um, what I love is that it feels like a community. Mm. And I, I think I, I, the conclusion that I've come to is that because of process philosophy, and because the process community is living that philosophy, they know that we're interconnected. They understand that. And that's why there's such a warmth and a welcoming in the community. When I first walked in the door, I, I didn't expect to be so welcomed and included, but I was. And so I... Um, Yeah, it's, I love being around people who are searching for, to understand the world and knowing that we're all in this together and we're all searching together and trying to, to understand it and to, um, to live a, a better way because we are interconnected to, be kinder to each other, to be kinder to the earth. Um, the natural world is very, very important to pagans, and it is to process people. Now, I want to, to introduce two words that that you've shared with me, and one is the word cauldron, <laughs> and the other is the word wand. And can we go just a little bit with each of those words in a kind of free-flowing way? So I guess let's start with cauldron. What is a cauldron? Why is a cauldron? Where is the cauldron? (laughs) Anything you want to say about cauldrons? Okay. And I do have a cauldron. I have a broom. I have a wand. I have all those witchy things. But um, to me, and, and to talk about it in process language, the cauldron is where everything exists. It's, it's kind of a metaphor 
And I, I like to say the cauldron of being. And so to me, I, I connect that to the consequent nature of God, that everything that's been experienced, everything um, that's ever been is in that cauldron. I absolutely love that. And, and I think personally, I think that's right. Uh, I mean, I think that's a good match mm -hmm. because the, the consequent nature of God is, is the everything mm -hmm. that's gathered into some kind of unity. And, um, but where the differences remain and um, cauldron is beautiful. So the notion of the cauldron of God or God is the cauldron, the cauldron of the universe among other things. Now you have a cauldron at your home. Is this right? You have a physical cauldron. What, what, is, what does it look like? What color is it? What's it made of? It's black. I could show it to you. It's right next to me. Well, but it, I know the, people that, the people that are listening in audio wouldn't get to see it, but so just describe it just a little okay. bit. So it's black. How big is it? It's, oh gosh, it's, it's about the size of a cooking pot. Mm -hmm. It has three legs, it's metal, and, and really the cauldron comes from the cooking pot. And so if you want to take the metaphor a little further, you know, if you were making a stew and you were throwing everything in it, you know, the celery and the carrots and the onions and everything you could find, there you go. Everything that's ever been, everything from your fridge. <laughs> Well, I think I have a name for that. I think that's called life mm -hmm. <laughs> because life includes that everything. Uh, remember Whitehead's quote that the fairies dance and Christ is nailed to the cross. Uh, philosophy must include the multiplicity of things. I love and that quote. It, it sounds like a cauldron includes the multiplicity. Yeah. Um, now, do you use your cauldron? Do, do you yourself put things in it? Uh, yes. Do you stir it? And, and when do you do that? And, and why and how do you do it? Yeah, I use it for different in different rituals. Um, I I often keep a candle in it. There are times where, um, like, for the um, the opening and the closing of the year, which we do at Samhain, which is in October, we light a big fire in it. Well, first, what we do for the closing of the old year, we we have a little candle and we say the fire burns low in the cauldron of being, and then we put the lid on it and, and close it out. And then you say, we are between the worlds, time stops. And mm -hmm. then we do our ritual and we do our work and, and then we relight it. And so we, we put a huge fire in it with some magic um, chemistry secrets <laughs> and uh, to make this big fire and we relight it for the year and we celebrate that the new year has begun. And, and for us, our year is, it's a spiral. We work with that spiral. We come around, the seasons are so important. And, and I think anybody who, who knows me will get that feeling of seasonal. I, I mean, that's just how I experience the world is in the changes of the seasons, but in a spiraling way. And so we come around again on the wheel of the year, but we're, we're older, we're, we've gained a year of life and we are becoming, we're not the same. That, that gives me a new eyes for some, 
some Christians I know actually, uh, in particular Episcopalians and, and Catholics who take the liturgical year seriously. And it's important to them to feel their way into the new seasons. And so many of those rituals were connected with actual seasons, you know. So I think paganism in that sense helps us. The disengaged among us, the disembodied among us, <laughs> remember, oh, yes, there are seasons. Now, um, and that's spiritual. Now, uh, I like the idea of growing wiser, too. So the spiral... The new this this season you're older than you were in the last season. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's now. What about wands, Kat? What what oh. what are wands about? <laughs> they, um, so I carved wands, and I, I wish I could show you my my wand. That um, I have one that I carved from my grandmother Sycamore. I um, I thanked her for giving me a, a piece of. Um, a twig that she um, dropped. And so it was there on the ground. And I, I thanked her for that. I also have a wand that's made out of ash tree that I carved and I carve leaves and things around it um, and flowers and working with it, it, it. I'm putting my energy into it and I'm creating a, a magical tool that I, and what it is, it's, it's almost like a meditation that tip of the wand, when I, when I point it, I'm focusing my energy. And that's what we do in meditation. I'm focusing my energy towards something. Do you, do you have a place that you usually do this? Uh, again, this will be audio and, and video. So some people will be listening, but not watching, but you're sitting in a chair, it looks to me like right now. Is there a place in your home that that's your go-to place for your rituals or how does that work? Do you have, do you have, do you have a shrine? Do you have shrines? Mm -hmm. Yes, I have. Um, I have altars. I have um, shrines. And then my, my garden in my backyard is full of little, little altars all around it. It's, I have um, kind of a spiral herb garden. Um, and then I have a little place in the back that you go through an arch to get through. And it's called the goddess garden. And I have a little, statues all around in the four directions and in the center and um yeah it's best if you can to to do ritual or to to work you know with nature to be outside and that connection to be barefoot and to feel the earth caressing your feet and to yes. feel the the air the wind on your skin to smell the scent of the flowers or the trees Mm -hmm. Do you go barefoot a lot? I like to um, take off my shoes when I go outside and to do ritual. Yeah. In the um, the Zen Buddhist tradition, which is part of my life, we always meditate with our not only with our shoes off but our socks off. Mm -hmm. and, and the purpose is, and then and then walking meditation. The purpose is to feel the floor that you're walking on or feel what, whatever you're walking on. And if it's cold, it's cold. You know, the, the question is not comfort. The question is connection. Mm -hmm. and, and the skin connects us. Yes. Um, that, that's really quite beautiful. Now, yeah, let's talk. Go ahead. Yeah. Oh, I please. was going to say the Druids also 
have a practice of, of lying on the earth or even kind of digging a little bit of a hole and, and laying there almost like being held in, in the earth, like a, like a baby. And especially if you're depressed or upset, just feeling that connection. I mean, just, you know, imagine thinking of the earth that way and really feeling it and acting like it. Well, I think, you know, in the interest of ecological civilization, we all need so much of that. We need those connections. Um, I want to ask a, about prayer for a second. And um, w- when I pray and when many people pray, it's a sense that there's something listening. The prayer is being given into something, someone more more than the earth, more than the stars, maybe in the stars, but more than the stars, mm-hmm. a kind of deep listening. Um, and, and you offer your prayer and you feel listened to in the midst of the prayer. Uh, can that play a role in the life of a respectable pagan? Mm-hmm. Yes, actually, the Druids have a very beloved prayer. And it is said in almost every Druid ritual I know in, in my grove. And that's what I call what, what we call our little group um, is a grove. And it's a small number of, of people that meet for ritual. And, and I would be happy to share the Druid's prayer with you. Okay. Please do. All right. Grant, O oh goddess, thy protection and in protection strength and in strength, understanding, and in understanding, knowledge, and in knowledge, the knowledge of justice, and in the knowledge of justice, the love of it, and in that love, the love of all existences, and in the love of all existences, the love of earth, our mother, and all goodness. Blessed be. At, at this moment, my prayer is that we can have that prayer too. <laughs> that that prayer speaks to so many people. You know, it speaks to the yearnings of so many hearts. That's a that's a a gorgeous, deeply meaningful prayer. Cat, uh, is there any? We'll we'll bring the the conversation to a close. Is there anything you kind of wish you'd been asked that you weren't asked, or you wish you you want to say you haven't said yet, um, please, please do. Yeah, you know, I would like to mention uh, the story of Taliesin because I think it's so connected to, to process or it, it does connect to process. And most people know Taliesin as Frank Lloyd Wright's home. That was the name of his home. But it's he named it that because it's the name of the great greatest bard and it's a story of transformation and it's a story it's it's um a celtic myth that in obad we work with in the bardic grade and it's about a young boy named guian bach and how he receives awen out of the cauldron the great cauldron they've been brewing for a year and a day and he transforms into Taliesin, the great bard. And he goes through many transformations because transformation isn't just one thing. And 
in the story, we work so deeply with this story and about our own transformation. And it just, that's process. I think um, Bernard, it wasn't Bernard Malin, I'm trying to think who it was that, that used the phrase creative transformation. Mm -hmm. um, but John Cobb picked up on that phrase and he wrote a book in which he actually identified creative transformation with God. Um, it, or, no, with Christ, excuse me. Christ in a pluralistic age. Christ was, is, creative transformation at work in the world. Mm -hmm. It's just what he says, you know. And I know that pagans don't, that's not the language of pagans, but the sensibility seems somewhat similar. And, and what, what, when you talk about the transformation of, of the bard, right? Yeah. That's kind of, um, that you're right. That's, that's really process. Um, this has been so, such a rich conversation for, for me. Um, and I hope that it is for everybody listening. Um, you got one last chance to say something. Oh, I wish I'd said that, that I didn't say. Anything else you want to say? Oh, let's see. Um, I think that I'll just end with that nature is sacred to pagans. And in that, we are very connected to ecological civilization and John Cobb's um, most important message that we need to save the earth. We need to do something. And I think that the biggest key to that is for us all to fall in love with nature and to see nature as sacred and that we are part of it. I said that was going to be the last thing. It's not the last thing because that made me think of something. Um, Thomas Berry, uh, a priest himself, once said that the, what's most needed um, among Christians is what he called the repaganization of Christianity. Mm -hmm. that, the repaganization of Christianity. It was the recovery of a sense that the, the sacred is in the earth, too. Yeah, I can't disagree with that. <laughs> True. <laughs> but you know, I think you experienced some of that repaganized Christianity uh, in the liturgies of the Catholic Church early on in your life. Um, there was something deeply pagan about about that the sense of mystery and in the movement and and the wooden on the pews, but you took it so far in such a good way. Well, I just want to thank you for being part of the process community. And I hope that everybody that listens to this learns from you, and I bet they do. And we'll hear more from you. So thank you. Take care. Conversations in Process is a co-production of the Cobb Institute and Open Horizons. If you'd like to support this podcast and help us realize our aim to advance wisdom, harmony, and the common good, please consider making a donation by visiting cob.institute. That's cob.institute and clicking on the donate button.